So my, I'm John and I'm uh, uh, one of the pastors here and we're looking today uh, at God's word uh, together. Uh, as Peter said earlier um, around Easter, we're using some of the Sundays before Easter and uh, after it as well and through it to explore just um, some of what the Bible has to say all about Jesus' death on the cross. And the whole point of it is that it gives us a bit of an opportunity to to understand more about it, but particularly from the Bible itself. Uh, we're going to look at some Bible passages, and, and uh, we're not going to go too deep into them, but just to get an idea that what we believe about Jesus on the cross, is, is, it comes from him. It comes from the Bible, as we saw last week. It came uh, particularly from his own understanding of it. Uh, that's all in last week's message, and I won't go back on that. But also we want to see how our lives connect with it. Because it's not just kind of interesting facts or things that we happen to know or believe. But these are uh, truths that are supposed to connect into our lives. Jesus said, remember on one, of, one of his most famous quotes was, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth is meant to have a kind of impact upon us. And so we're trying to think as well of how it connects with it. And we're going to be discovering, as I hope we already saw last week, that our understanding of the cross and Jesus dying for us on the cross goes well beyond the first steps in the Christian life. When we become a Christian, in a sense, the first thing, one of the first things we understand, the reason we, we turn to God and we trust in Jesus because we realize we need his forgiveness and something about his death on the cross is what that's about. But there's a lot more to it as well. Now, last week we looked at the cross and we thought about it in relation to sin and to how we're forgiven. Uh, and this week uh, kind of builds on that. Uh, and the, we're thinking this week about peace and reconciliation, two words that, that come together when the Bible talks about Jesus dying on the cross and what it's all about. And like last week, I want us to, to begin with um, a, a verse from the New Testament that kind of sums up. This is in 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 18. It says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the uh, righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Last week, we thought about what it means that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And we'll be in there a little bit again this week. But mainly, it's that final clause, that final bit, to bring you to God. That's an amazing idea. Christ suffered once for sins to bring us to God. It all chimes into a, a very kind of ancient story and possibly an experience that human beings have of kind of longing for home. It kind of resonates with us, that sense that, that we have of of being separated from God. It, you know, it, it goes right back to the story in the Garden of Eden. That gives us the reasons why human beings became kind of separated or exiled from God, the result of their, their rebellion. They're exiled, and there's no way back. And that's a very ancient kind of uh, story, a, a, a description of, of our problem. It's true as well. I'm not saying it's an untrue story, but it, it kind of chimes into this experience that we have. And I, I think it's true that in most cultures, there's this kind of hunger. You see it right through the centuries in different places as people explore ways to try and find their way to God. 
guess it's only in the 20th century that we, we kind of ended up with whole cultures deciding that there wasn't anything or anybody to worship. Well, they thought they decided that. Actually, they ended up worshipping other things instead. But right through our kind of history, there's this human desire to kind of somehow get home to God, I suspect. And it comes out in all kinds of ways. It comes out in our art sometimes. It comes out in our our rituals. It comes out sometimes when we're confused or in pain. Where we say, why? You know, we, we may not even believe in God, but we kind of think, why? You know, and who do we ask? Why to? Well, we kind of cry out to to the, um, the cosmos, you know, like that, uh, one of those films, you know, where people, the guy falls down and says, no, you know, kind of, kind of regaling against. Heather can remember the film, but I can't remember the film. Uh, but, you know, that kind of cry, and that, that's an ancient cry as well. In fact, it, right in the, one of the very oldest books in the Bible, no need to turn to it, You've heard the story of Job. You know, Job had a terrible time. And Job was an, a kind of ancient believer in God who cries out to God. And in Job chapter 9, Job 9 rather, verse 32, this is Job's experience. He's talking about God. He said, he's not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear for him, of him rather. But as it is, as it now stands with me, I can't. That kind of ancient cry, if only there was someone who could make it possible for me to kind of get to God. And the Israelites in the Old Testament, (coughs) they struggled with that too. Even when uh, we were thinking last week of Isaiah's prophecy, which came at a time when they were being judged and everything had gone very badly wrong. But even when things weren't going wrong, there was a place where symbolically God was as close as they could get to him. But nobody could go there apart from the high priest. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest went there to the very inner place of their, their place of worship called the tabernacle. And only once a year into the very kind of heart of it, the high priest could go. Only he could go. And he had to go with blood from an animal sacrifice, which he, he sprinkled on the lid of what was called the Ark of the Covenant. That's a picture. That's not actually it. It's a picture of it, what it might have been according to the description. And you see what he did that on that once a year, he'd go and he sprinkled some blood and he kind of represent the people and only the high priest could go there and he would put the blood on top of the box underneath the angelic wings and that piece, place was called the mercy seat. We'll come back to this a bit later. So it reminds you of Raiders of the Lost Ark maybe, but that, you know, that's because they're kind of trying to uh, represent from the biblical description. And God said, actually, that it was that place in that time where he would meet with them in a special, close way. But most of the time, they couldn't go there. And all of this was replicated in the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. There was no ark there. I think that had got lost, hence the film, but that's another story. Uh, But but the, the ark got lost somewhere along the road. But the kind of structure of the tabernacle was replicated 
in um, the temple. And in that very kind of closest to God part, there was this huge curtain that had kind of, didn't literally have no access in it or no unauthorized access written on it in Hebrew, but it might as well have had. That was the message. Nobody could get there apart from the high priest. Again, once a year with that kind of, or or an equivalent of that ritual. And you know what happened to that curtain when Jesus died? It was ripped open, ripped in half. If you read the Gospels, Matthew says, when Jesus cried and breathed his last, he said, at that very moment, the temple ripped. Everything changed. That's why Peter says, Christ suffered once to bring us to God. Today we're going to look into this a bit more and see what it does for us. I want us to be thinking about God's reconciliation through the cross. And I want us to have a look at a passage of the Bible in the New Testament. And it's on page 1182. If you'd like to turn it up. Sometimes, as last week, the uh, passages will come up on the screen, but not always. Uh, But this is one that isn't coming up. So it's page 1182, Colossians chapter 1. And we're reading from verse 19. uh, Paul is talking about Jesus, and he says here, For God was pleased to have all his fullness, all God's fullness, dwelling in him, Jesus. And through him, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation and so on. We have that very straightforward statement in one sense in verse 20. Through him, God has reconciled to himself all things. It's a very straightforward statement in one sense, but behind it there's this picture of the need for reconciliation, isn't it? It's the picture of a fouled relationship. Many of us will know what that feels like. A relationship where what should have been love has effectively become war. And according to this uh, verse, it's spread everywhere. Not just like when we see relationships break down tragically in families, it, it spreads to the rest of the family, to the kids and so on. Here, Paul is saying this relationship breakdown has spread to everywhere, all things. And Jesus, it says, has done something to put that right on the cross. It's like Jesus has started off, kicks off, well, and he completes it, God's peace process. A way for everything to be restored. And again, looking at verse 21 to 22, see that there? The language is of alienation from God. Once, says Paul, You were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds. Why? Because of evil behavior. Because of things we've done. But now, says Paul, there's been a reconciliation. 
God, Jesus has made it possible for enemies to be friends. Exiles can come home. And how has that happened? Through Jesus' death on the cross. That's what it says quite simply here in Colossians 1, doesn't it? Shall we find out a bit more about it? We need to look at another passage. If you turn back a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that's on page 1162. Because we're thinking about, okay, how has this reconciliation happened? And this little passage begins to explain it to us. We'll read from verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the, rec- the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, or we implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, there's a huge amount in this passage, but I just want to have a look at some things. There it is up there, as well as in front of you. So what's the picture? It says here that God has reconciled us. There we are. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. He was reconciling the world to himself. There it is. It's there. It's the same in Colossians, wasn't it? We're doing a simple Bible study here. How does he do that? How does that happen? Well, it tells us in the passage. It's all hidden in a... It's not deliberately hidden, but I was talking to someone earlier. There's a lot of words in this passage. But there it is. What's he done? Not counting people's sins against them. That's what it says. Black and white, or red and white in this case. Wow. How does he do that then? You might be thinking, well, God's holy. If God is holy... If things that are wrong uh, and sinful matter to him, and everything the whole of the story of the Bible tells us is that it matters to him, everything about our own conscience is said that tells us that somehow things that are wrong matter. So how come God can not count people's sins against them? Well, it tells us. See that at the bottom there? God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. That's astonishing, isn't it? That's what it says. How was Jesus made to be sin for us? Many theologians and many people have argued about that, and I'm not going to go into all the different arguments here. But that is what it says. He was made sin for us. It's a mystery, to be honest. There are clues. We see some of the background. We, if, you, if you missed it last week, go and listen online. We had looked at a lot of the Old Testament clues and a lot of the other reasons that are given. But the bottom line, it is a mystery. We don't really understand it. But it's to do with what happened on the cross. 
Remember what happened on the cross? One of the things, remember those hours of darkness, those three hours when the sun would not shine? Uh, there was a total eclipse of the sun or whatever. Happened to conveniently arrive at that time. If you don't believe in miracles, if you do believe, then God enabled that to happen. The sun did not shine for three hours on that occasion while Jesus suffered on the cross. And at the end of that time, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God is abandoned by God. How's that? How does that work? We don't know fully. But Jesus takes into the experience of the Godhead what it means to be overwhelmed by human sin and evil in the darkness. The Bible says he becomes a curse for us. Sin and its consequences is in that moment absorbed into God's love in Christ on the cross. And more than that, it goes on to say something else. Did you notice that? Not only does he bear our sin, not only does he share our sin, but we can share his righteousness. That's what it says. How about that? Notice it says it's in him. It's when we're connected with him. Our connection, uh, what the Bible, what, what kind of scholars we don't talk about, our union with Christ. Because we're connected with him, the exchange takes place for us personally. That's what it says. Let's think for a minute or two about the way it comes into our lives. And for that, we're going to need to look at another passage, which you can turn to if you like. It's in, on page 1130 in Romans chapter 3 uh, from verse 21. But this is coming up on the screen if your fingers are getting a bit weary from moving around uh, the text. But I'm doing this deliberately because I want us to see this is what the Bible says. This isn't what kind of evangelical Christians kind of put in their doctrinal basis because they think it's a good idea. It's actually from the Bible here, okay? But there it is up there, Romans 3, verse uh, 21. I've, I've skipped a few bits because of getting it onto the screen, but I read the full thing here from the text. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance... Actually, we'll leave it there. There's a, lot, there's a bit more, but we can, we'll leave it at there. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul is unpacking the good news of the gospel. And he focuses on this issue of righteousness. And by that, he means being in the right place with God. You know, the thing that kind of keeps us away from God in the first place is that sense we have of, well, you know, there's this problem that we have. How can we kind of be righteous to get to God? And Paul's kind of unpacking that. 
And in the first chapters of Romans, he comes to the conclusion that nobody, you might be a really, uh, really pagan pagan, you might be a really, you know, upright and good living Greek, or you might be a really super, super holy Jew, uh, if it's in the book of Romans, doesn't matter what you like, we've all got the same problem. Okay, you can read it in, in the first few chapters of, of Romans if you want to later on. And what, we, what it says is that uh, we're all in a mess. Nobody is righteous. We're all in the wrong. But verse 22 then says this, doesn't it? It says, but now there is a righteousness that can be given to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That can mean, if you've got a footnote there, that, that righteousness comes to us through the faithfulness of Jesus. But it's given to those who believe. It's like Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus faithfully, as the Messiah, kept all God's law, lived the perfect life. It's like Paul is saying all of his faithfulness and righteousness kind of, can kind of come into our account, so to speak. It's only a picture. Don't get too hung up on the idea of the account. It can be given to us. He says everyone has sinned. Yeah? There it is in the text. But anyone can be justified. And justified means to be declared righteous, to be declared not guilty, to not have that problem of you know, being guilty of what's wrong anymore. And that can just be given to us, it says. We can be justified freely. Actually, it says, as a gift, freely by his grace as a gift. And why can we get that gift? It says through the redemption. And we saw last week that that word redemption is the kind of word that the New Testament uses for Jesus' death on the cross when he paid the price for our freedom. So he's saying we can be declared righteous freely as a gift. And then it also says that Jesus is, was Jesus' death, it says, is like a sacrifice of atonement there. Now, again, if you've got the footnote, you'll see that can also mean a mercy seat. Remember the picture of the ark? That, the lid at the top where God said, I will meet with you? The text is also saying, God made Jesus like that. A place where he could meet with us because of his death. On the cross. Jesus, God meets us at the cross. Jesus is the one who enables it to, be, to happen. And it happens through his blood. So to say that God has made him the mercy seat doesn't mean to say that you're negating the sacrifice on the cross because it's there too. It's there in, in, in the double reference. So God enables us to meet with him through Jesus at the cross. And it's a gift received by faith as we believe. This is God's reconciliation. And he offers it to all who believe. All who stop all who turn to him, 
all who come God's way through Jesus Christ, his son. And the great thing, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God. All of it. Have I got anything to contribute? No. Not if all of it is from God. I just have to receive it. And it happened when Jesus died on the cross. Now, when we think reconciliation, we think of two people breaking apart, obviously. And sometimes we think that when that happens or when countries are at war, you know, the United Nations get involved or sometimes when uh, couples have problems, you know, relate becomes like the United Nations and kind of steps in and helps them to mediate. They compromise, they find a way. They sign a peace agreement or, you know, in counseling they, or couples therapy, they might make a contract, you know, and agree to change in these different ways on both sides. Now, God's reconciliation is absolutely nothing like that. Nothing like that whatsoever. God does everything. He doesn't meet us halfway. He comes right where we are. He brings us back to him. This is amazingly good news, isn't it? Well, I think so. It's there to be received, to be enjoyed, to be shared. So let's think about what the difference might be in our lives as a result. What difference could it possibly make? Well, here's the first thing. Our inner lives change. The person I am, the person I begin to become, there are changes. The way I experience a sense of identity or security, the way I begin to know God, something changes. And we see it in Romans. Again, in the book of Romans, if you've got the Bible open, it's just on the next page in Romans 5. In fact, it's great. Peter didn't know this, but we've already had it read to us this morning. It's coming up on the screen, Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that's what Paul's been talking about in Romans 3, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of, of, of sharing the, uh, sorry, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, I'm just going to go through this simply. There's a lot of words here, but let's pick out some. What happens in our inner lives? We have peace with God. We're welcomed home. We're made, if we've been justified by faith, if we've just received God's gift of, of, just, of being, being made right with him, we're welcomed home. It's like we're completely righteous as far as he's concerned. 
We have the immediate peace of reconciliation. You know, sometimes when, like in peace processes and wars and stuff like that, I suppose there's feeling, oh, is it going to be all right? Or, you know, often the, you, know, you hear of so-called ceasefires, don't you, in the Syrian conflict, another conflict, and it's not long before, oh, no, it's all kind of kicked off again. But no, this is peace. We're right there. We've got nothing to do. Nothing we had to do, nothing in one sense we still need to do, nothing to prove, no more trying to make it again. We're reconciled, we're at peace right away because of Jesus' death on the cross. We have peace with God. More, it says we have access into his grace. That's a phrase we'll come up in a minute. We're brought home to God. So we can pray to a father with all the resources that, that, that are needed to help us in our lives. It says we have hope of God's glory and that suffering is different. It doesn't say we, doesn't, don't, we don't suffer, but that in our sufferings there is this awareness of, of God's hope and God's presence. There's a process of growing. See, there's a process there. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope and so on. Hope is kind of bookended at either side. There's this process of growing change. And then there's, it's not just kind of words on a page because it says God's love has been poured into our hearts. There's an experience of God's love, an awareness of God's presence. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us and God's life, God's person, all that God has done comes into our lives and it changes our inner life with peace, with access to grace, standing in God's grace, with hope in the process, with God's, the knowledge of God in our hearts. There's a transformation going on. So our inner lives change, but also... Our outer lives change. If you could just bear me with me, I want to read one more passage, 1174, page 1174. It's in the book of Ephesians. This one I don't have on the screen, so if you could uh, look it up, please. Uh, and it's verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 2. Some of it you will have noticed. Hopefully, if... Uh, I haven't lost you completely. It will be ringing bells with other things we've uh, been looking at. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, we've been there and we've seen that already. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. <clears throat> now, what on earth is all that? Who are the two? Well, the two are Jews and Gentiles. The context makes that clear. And uh, Paul is talking about how we've come, been brought, we've been brought near to God, and both Jews and Gentiles have come in that way now Jews and Gentiles didn't get on well 
in the ancient world and they uh, perhaps still don't in some places. But verse 15, look at the second verse of verse 15. God has done something to bring the two groups together because as he's reconciled them to God, so they've become like one new humanity. Both have access. Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus have the same access. They're standing in the same place. Paul says, I'm making them like, you know, where they were like two, they really hated each other's guts and so on. Now they are one, like one humanity. Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So that access that I have to God as a believer, that we read about in Romans 5, that's fantastic. I can come, I can have that access to God, I know him, I get to know him and everything, but hey, I'm not the only one here. <laughs> Around me are all these other people who have access to God by faith in Jesus. And maybe they're people that before I didn't like very much. And what Paul is saying is that our outer lives change because we're in this Christian community where different groups that would normally never be in the same place are together. More than that, have become like one kind of organic kind of being because God has brought them to Jesus. Jesus has brought them to God through the cross and they're reconciled to one another as well. Now this is important and the church, our church, all the churches needs to be like that. We have shared access. We can enjoy being brought to God and to each other, where we are different races, where we have different abilities, where we may have different resources. We may be different ages. We may have different political views. We may have different social privileges. We have, may have different opinions and preferences. We may be from different so-called social tribes. We may be Brexiteers and Remainers, if you like. But God said, the Bible says that we've been brought together if we've been brought to him. And we need to show that. We need to be this one new humanity because we have been reconciled to God and the peace that has come is not just between me and God, you and God, us and God, but between one another as well. That's a challenge for the church. But it's the hope of the world, isn't it? How are we going to live that? How are we going to do that better? And our outer worlds also change in the worlds we live in. My final point. We're going back to 1, 2 Corinthians 5, so you don't need to turn to it. It's back on the screen. The bits we didn't look at before. What is our response to what God has done in reconciling us to himself? God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And what's he done? He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. There it is. He's given us this message of reconciliation. We can be ambassadors. That are, the ambassadors at the time were people who announced the king or ruler had done something. And Paul says, I implore says, we implore, actually the you in there is not in the original, but there's no, uh, there's no kind of whatever the grammatic phrase is for the you word. It's left. And it, 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 it means that what Paul is saying, what we do is we implore, we go around saying, be reconciled to God. 
That's what we say. That's our lives. That's what we live. We implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we live as reconcilers. And we can do that, can't we? Surely if I'm secure that the biggest issue that I could ever face, having that kind of access to God, if I, I can be comfortable and know that I've been accepted in the most kind of crucial area of my life, if you like at the cosmic level that sets the whole of eternity then I ought to be able perhaps to sit with others who maybe need peace in trying to sort out their differences maybe. Maybe we could get into some peacemaking ourselves. What a witness that would be. Maybe God would make his appeal for us that way. Of course, we also need to tell people, we need to live lives that say, you know, it's impossible for people like anyone to be reconciled to God to know God as father, as friend, as loving master and Lord. And we share that message of reconciliation to God through Jesus. We share it, don't we? But we could be reconcilers too, couldn't we? I think we might be needing quite a few reconcilers around our communities in this country in the near future. Don't know why I think that, but you know, could we be those people who live like that? God's reconciliation through the cross then. He's done everything. Receive it. Enjoy it. Live it. Live it in Christian community in this, the opportunity we have. And we have a unique one in our city to do that. Live it out in the world. He has made peace. He gives peace. He is our peace. He proclaims peace through us. God makes his appeal through us. So let's just do that, shall we? Receive it. Enjoy it. Live it. With God's help. We're going to continue in worship and praise as the band lead us now. Thank you, band. Thanks.